The scripture reading today is from Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. Then the daughters of Zelophehad came forward. Zelophehad was son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Manassite clans. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of the meeting and they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sins and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father on to them. You shall also say to the Israelites, If a man dies and has no son then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for the Israelites a statute and an ordinance, as the Lord commanded Moses. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Donald Miller gives us the formula to every successful plot line in movie, TV show, and fiction book history. He applies this formula to everything and it always works. This formula has become so predictable that whenever he goes to see the movies, he always ruins it for everybody by saying, this is what's gonna happen next. And when I learned the formula, it kind of messed me up too. I can sort of spot it in different things that I watch and I see. It kind of messed me up. And I'm about to tell you the formula thereby messing you up. Here we go, here's the formula. A character with a problem meets a guide who gives them a plan, calls them to action, and that results in success. Here's, gonna, here's the example of using it in Star Wars. A character, Luke Skywalker, with a problem, the Empire meets a guide, Yoda and Obi-Wan who gives them a plan, the force, and calls them to action, fight, 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 that results in success. The Death Star is destroyed. Every plot line in mainstream has this formula. There's character development, there's an exciting climax, and then there's a resolution and a happily ever after. Every brand and product that you buy also uses this formula where you're the hero, the product is your guide, and you overcome whatever challenges you have in your life to save the day. 
When this formula is applied to real life and real history though, what does this mean? What happens when we want a neat formula to work, when we want a happily ever after? This is what I like to call a progress narrative. Here we go. A character, the pilgrims, with a problem, religious persecution, meets a guide, God, who gives him a plan, Christian mission, calls him to action, cross over the Atlantic on the Mayflower, and it results in success. Settlements, life, the American dream. These neat narratives, while providing us a lot of resolution and entertainment, have a different meaning when you try to apply them to real life and to real history. Because real life is really messy. It's complex. There are intersecting realities and stories. There's intersecting uh, competition of interests. If we were to ignore these realities because we need to be positive and hopeful and not dwell in the past, we are only left with progress narratives. Progress narratives are neat. They're very efficient. They provide a very clear through line. They're very optimistic. They're full of positivity and hope. They're full of heroes and people who save the day. They're these messianic figures. We love a good success story. Somebody who rose and, and met the challenge. We love that. But every progress narrative with this optimism and hope has an underbelly of intersecting realities. Stories of violence and conquest, stories of competing interests, stories that remain mostly silent or stories that are silenced because you can't invade the progress narrative. I say it's an underbelly because usually it's not a part of the progress narrative. Not only that, it's a sidebar. It's seen as an alternative reality, one that you can opt out of. It's not integrated at all. It's just too invasive. It's too negative. It's too divisive. We Christians love a good progress narrative and we love using the Bible to do it. Here we go. A character, Moses, with a problem, slavery of God's chosen people, meets a guide, God in the burning bush, who gives them a plan, tell Pharaoh to let my people go and calls them to action cross over the Red Sea, cross through the Red Sea, I guess, that results in success. All of Pharaoh's men are killed in the Red Sea and the freed slaves are headed to the promised land. Mala, Noah, Holga, Milka, and Terza in our passage today interrupts the progress narrative of the great liberation, the great exodus into the promised land. These, these five sisters remind us that there's a wilderness not only was there a wilderness, there are many stories in this wilderness, many intersecting realities in this wilderness. Five sisters, no man in their lives, no husband, no father, no brothers, completely vulnerable, completely without protection. They want to fashion some sort of future for themselves. How will they do it? These years of wilderness had 
the, the Israelites aching to go back to slavery, questioning if what they were experiencing right now in the wilderness was even worth leaving Egypt behind. No water at times, no food at other times. They forget what God has done for them over and over again. God gives constant reminders and new rules to live by, to live and practice their freedom. For instance, God has to actively tell them to take a Sabbath day because they are so ingrained to work and work as non-human robots. God is reminding them of their humanity, saying, you can rest for a day. You can worship me for a day. That has to be learned. And now this first generation of, of formerly enslaved is dying out. They're leaving everything to the second generation to continue on this liberative work of embodying their freedom. Being free and being liberated is really, really hard. It is a daily constant practice. It requires untangling oneself from the ingrained programmed ways of oppression, enslavement, invisibility, and persecution of being completely blind to the ways that you've been taught before. It is an undoing of everything you knew, an undoing, um, uh, an unraveling of your reality in order to become whole, human, redemptive, restored human beings, transformed human beings. It's realizing that in a free life, removing our rough edges is a process that takes time. Being vulnerable and being soft is actually strength, but becoming soft is really hard. I know that Mala, Noah, Holga, Milka, and Tirza exercised their agency in the wilderness. They rose up as women to tell Moses to his face, to give them what was theirs, their inheritance. They worked together as sisters to advocate for themselves legally and for other women to be protected by these laws. They worked in systemic ways. This in itself could be seen as a great progress narrative, y'all. And we so want to go there. We so want to give that story. Their inheritance was really granted to them uh, by God, by God's self. And so they have a lot to celebrate in this progress narrative. But I'm going to attempt to integrate an underbelly story here. Mala, Noah, Holga, Milka, and Tirza lost their mother in earlier years. They may have never known their mother. They recently lost their father. They only knew life really in the wilderness. Their ancestors were slaves and some of the people that they're hanging out with this first generation are still acting through their enslave, enslavement, through their slave mentalities. They watched on uh, later on in numbers, we'll see, they watched on as people in their tribe, the freed ones, um, ravaged and killed men and women that they encountered in other cities, only keeping alive young virgins for the men's pleasure to rape. I want to believe that Mala, Noah, Holga, Milka, and Tirza did not forget this as they prepared to enter the promised land, as they prepared to enter Canaan, and they advocated for their own piece of it. There is this term, it's called melancholia. It's basically the constant engagement and remembrance of loss, of a constant grief, 
so much that it becomes a daily part of your existence. It's different from mourning and grief, where eventually you cycle through, you process, you eventually move on with your life. This is something that stays with you all the time or something that keeps happening to you. And over time, it is integrated into your full life. W.E.B. Du Bois talked about a double consciousness that happens as a result of being a racialized other, of being a human but considered non-human at the same time, of being a racialized body and what that does to somebody's reality, what that does to somebody's heart and their psyche. As an Asian American, I know that I'm either a model minority or a, a perpetual foreigner. I don't fit in America, nor do I fit in Korea. I'm looking for a home. I keep trying to find it and I keep running into dead ends. It's a racial melancholia that sits within me, a constant loss of a home that I really never knew. I recently read a book called Hope Draped in Black by Joseph Winters. And he talks about some sort of possibility, some sort of hope arising out of melancholia, a melancholic hope, a hope that's tied to melancholy. It's a more sober look at the world. And through this sober outlook, a future, a different kind of future can be reorganized and reshaped through these fragments of the dissonant past and present. It is a full integration of the underbelly that seeks to resist the progress narrative. And all of that is fashioned into something completely different. This new sort of future is actually better, he advocates. It's actually better than our wildest dreams than any progress narrative can ever do for us. It's better than a shallow optimism. I wanna think that Mala, Noah, Holga, Milka, and Tirza continue to be unsettled by the past, by the present, and it was helping them understand the present in a way that they acted strategically, very carefully for a future. They were acting through a melancholic hope, a future always tied to the realities of the past. God did tell Moses to give them their inheritance and Moses did grant it to them. But later on in Numbers, we'll see that Moses worked somehow around God's commands to reestablish the patriarchal lineage. He made it so that these five sisters had to marry their first cousins to keep their inheritance to their tribe, uh, to keep that bloodline pure and keep their inheritance there that it wouldn't be dispersed amongst other tribes if they married people in other tribes. This is what they had to do. Eventually their story and their names even faded away and they were just considered the daughters. These sisters appear five times in the Old Testament and yet their story is not included in the lectionary. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon about these five sisters. Are we exercising melancholic hope today by remembering them and their stories? I'd like to think so. What can this look like for us to practice melancholic hope today?
and where is God in it? We can look first, we can look for progress narratives all around us. They're everywhere. They're not just in the movies and TV. They're in every social movement. Uh, think about civil rights movements. It, it's, it's in everything. Learn to identify the progress narratives, post-racial narratives for one. What sorts of things are we going to pass down to our younger generation? What are the stories of our families that we're going to tell? Second, look for the invisible and the underbelly stories all around us. Those other realities that are silenced or silent or silent. Some say that the country banded together after 9-11 and became a stronger nation, that we came together and we helped each other, um, that our economy didn't suffer, but that everything became better. But others said different stories. They told different stories that this was their day when they became marked people because of the color of their skin and their religion. Take a moment in time, take a moment in history and examine it from different lens, from different viewpoints, from different theological lenses as well. How do others interpret it? And third, finally, most important, practice grace for others and especially for yourself. Liberation, freedom, it's a daily practice. There's a certain kind of patience in developing melancholic hope. This practice is really hard when we're trained to love progress narratives for their efficiency and optimism, for their neat storylines, for their resolution, for their branding. But this deep work, it takes time. And with faith, every step of the way, it's better. Jesus reminded his followers that it wasn't Moses, it wasn't the hero who gave them their bread, it was God. Jesus showed patience to the disciples as they were fumbling to imagine their freedom by following Christ. Jesus affirmed that he was the bread of life and his constant interaction with the stories of the underbelly reminds me that Jesus had this amazing melancholic hope that Jesus modeled it here. With these practices of melancholic hope, I pray that all of us um, can practice embodying our faith, embodying who we are as freed people in Christ. Let us pray. God, with each moment of dissonance between the past and the present that we fashion and fragment into the future, please give us a melancholic hope. God, please open our eyes and our hearts to be in attunement to your work in the world and all around us. And help us cultivate compassion as we practice melancholic hope for whatever you have in store for the future. For that one is beyond our wildest imaginations and will lead us in our freedom. Help us practice freedom in Jesus and help us to move with faithfulness in alignment to your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.